DiscerningHearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima, On Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. When you think of liturgy, well, let's talk rubrics. Let's talk structure. Let's talk order. And those are important in as far as the liturgy goes. And you have them in all aspects. I don't think, you know, as a Catholic, I mean, there's structure and order to, well, quite frankly, there's order to the world. Here, let's, let's talk birthday parties. All right, candles, we need cake. What time should we arrive? Of course, you have to ask those questions. But that's not what the birthday party is. They only allow the birthday party to happen. So what if liturgy wasn't just the rules? What if it was a mystical encounter with our uh, spouse, with our bridegroom Christ? Then we would know what the rules are for. There are rules of speech, which is why the metaphor of a grammar came to me from my studies. One of my professors, Paul Homer, used this repeatedly. There's a grammar to life, a kind of a form to life. The grammar makes a sentence intelligible. If I put the words in any sequence I wanted, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. But do I walk around protesting against grammar? Oh, the oppression of grammar. It won't let me speak freely. Uh, Ask any musician who's practiced scales and knows chord structure. He can sail above those when he has a foundation in them. So I have no problem with the structural, rubrical necessities of liturgy. But I spend less time in it than I spend in wondering what tune, what melody is this liturgy supposed to be creating. And you can have the, may seem like the perfect birthday party, but what makes the party something that is transformative for the person who's experiencing it, it's the joy that's experienced. It's the love. I've been at celebrations where it's been kind of cold, not necessarily cold in expression, but I think it, to your point, it, there's something more. It's the more. You're pointing out that it is not controllable by only external factors, though the external factors have to be present. Mm-hmm. It's a commitment. It's an effort. It's putting oneself into this occasion, which might sound then that for liturgy to be liturgical, might as well let the snake bite its tail. I have to enter it with full active and conscious participation. Mm. That's a comment about my heart, not a comment about my location in the sanctuary. I have to bring with it a willingness or a desire. In my business about trying to connect seven days of asceticism to the eighth day of liturgy is that the ascetical struggle, asceticism just comes from a Greek word, eschesis, that means train or discipline athletic training. We're on campus and the fall semester is kind of getting underway and the football players have returned to campus for their esquisas. 
they're doing their training. They're running laps and doing sit-ups. Well, that's the hesitation that takes place during the week so that I can participate fully, actively, consciously with desire, with heartfelt love, with a will aligned. But that doesn't just uh, turn on and off like a light switch. That involves relationship. Relationships take work. Hmm, full active participation of the mystic. That's the idea. There's an ascetical effort and the mystical f- takes flight. I've seen pictures of birds that take lots and lots of steps. Oh, I've seen them take off from water. We might as well go back to a baptismal imagery. Here's the uh, bird running along the surface of the water while he's flapping his wings and then takes off. The feet are the asceticism, and the wings are mysticism. I hadn't put asceticism and and mysticism together before in quite that way. I like it. Mm -hmm. There's this effort in order to get your speed up, and uh, mysticism is when you leave the uh, surface. Well, let's talk about asceticism, if we can, because I have to be able to say it, for one thing, (laughs) because it's not a word we're used to using. I think a lot of us, we think of, I can be spiritual, even in my religion, I can be spiritual, but an aesthetic, I don't have a desert nearby. If I'm lucky, I can go on a weekend retreat and then I can be possibly aesthetic. What's the difference? What is that? I've described eschesis. That spares you the um, pronunciation. Thank you. Speaking thereof, um, I do note that Asceticism produces beauty. So now we have an aesthetic asceticism. We're to become aesthetic ascetics or vice versa. That's even harder to say. So I'm going to have to really practice that. Precisely. Eschesis is a a discipline or training. And it was used in Greek first to mean athletes, which is why the church tradition referred to those monks in the desert as athletes, spiritual athletes. And then some philosophers picked it up. And the Stoics talked about an ascesis that trained the moral life. And then the Christians at large picked it up to uh, talk about the, I'm going to insert a different word here, also taught me by Paul Homer, talk about the capacitation of a person, to develop capacities, to enlarge the roominess of the soul. And that, I think, is what ascesis involves. And my uh, proposition is that all baptized are called to be ascetics. Only some of them are of the monastic variety. Just like all baptized are called to be theologians, only some of them are of the academic variety. And all baptized are called to be mystics, only some of them are of this extraordinary variety. So every baptized is to be an ascetic, but some went into the desert. Why? Interesting explanations given by the monks who are in the desert. And their sayings are collected in these books. One of the best, I think, is a man from the world coming to a monk and asking, what are you doing here? And the monk takes a stick and stirs the puddle of water in front of him. I used to do this walking to school and drag a stick through and the silt would swirl up. It was just pretty to see. But then the puddle got muddy and a monk asks, what do you see there? And the man said, nothing. So then they just sit in silence for a little bit. That's another part of the lesson, I presume. Interrogator has to stop asking questions in order to hear the answer. They sit quietly by the pond until all that mud settles. And then the monk asks, now look, what do you see? 
and the man can see his own face reflected. And he said, that's what I'm doing here. Mm. I'm letting the mud settle, the silt settle down. I think of the monks in the desert conducting a scientific experiment on the human heart. And the lesson we all learned in science class in seventh grade is that you have to have a controlled environment. If you want to learn whether playing music would make a plant grow better, you have to make sure that you give the two plants the same amount of water, the same amount of feed, same amount of light. The monks wanted to do a scientific experiment on what it cost, what was the price to form a human heart to the image of God. So they controlled the environment by going into a special environment. They left city and family and marriage and property and wealth, not because any one of those things were bad, but because they needed this place where the silt would settle down and they could uh, listen to, be attentive to how the um, spirit is working in the human heart. And what did they discover? Well, a lot. And uh, this is the uh, tradition of asceticism. Evagrius of Pontus went and asked them questions. What have you learned while you're here? And they told them their answers. And Evagrius organized and systematized their answers, and he identified eight passions that stir up the heart that must be battled against. And these he called the eight passions, and they entered the Western tradition through Evagrius's disciple Cassian. Then they got tinkered with slightly, and they became the seven vices, the seven deadly sins. So this is a discovery made in the deserts of Egypt and Palestine, making its way into the Western vices and virtues tradition. That's a nutshell picture of ascesis, though we haven't defined the passions yet. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to be a mystic, you have to start by battling with the passions. And in the one chapter, I have this imagery that somehow while I was writing it, mystery became a woman. Lady Mystery was accompanying Christ. And why can't she come in and take up residence in our hearts because of this vice and this passion and this sin? One must throw the dirt out and clean the house so that mystery can come and take up an abode there. One addendum, which I tried not to interrupt my tone of thought, all of the ascetics are deliberate about saying there's nothing wrong with the world, but we must leave the world in order to bless the kingdom of God. And we do that for the sake of the world. So I make the point to my students by saying, there's nothing wrong with money, sex, or beer. The problem is avarice, lust, and gluttony. And then they get it. No thing is sinful. Anything can be misused and become a passion, become a vice. So the asceticism isn't about stopping those things. The asceticism is about taking the world properly with glory to God. And that, your listeners won't believe it, but we worked our way back around to liturgy for my teacher, Aidan Kavanaugh's repeated definition of liturgy was doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. Mm. Seeing the world the way the world was meant to be seen. If I see my neighbor with lust, I can't see her for who she is. If I see my neighbor with avarice, then he's an enemy that I have to battle. 
how could I see the world? How could I take the world? How could I do the world the way the world was meant to be done? That would be a liturgical posture, but it would require this ascetical discipline so that I could take the world correctly. You know, there's a prayer that is fairly common, and I mean that in a beautiful way. That means that many people are pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill the hearts of your faithful. Oh, nice, yes. And it's beautiful. But how can he fill it if there's a lot of other stuff there? Right. You know, we implore, and yet we haven't taken that time, as you said, to identify those things that take up space. So there's a yin and a yang, a negative and a positive. And I guess asceticism has such a bad reputation because it's the first step, left foot, right foot. It's the first step of the left foot of negative. You're going to have to throw something out. You're going to have to put this away. How can I look with love at Christ my Savior if my eye is bouncing around all of these temporal things? Oh, there's a new Xbox. There's a new iPad coming. There's a new... How could I look at eternity if my eye is locked on temporal things? Well, asceticism is releasing the eye. Uh, another metaphor that I stumbled into and use repeatedly is that after original sin, we are born with a cataract of sin on our eye. And we can't see clearly and we don't see brightly. The world isn't bright around us. Asceticism is removing that cataract. And now there's sight. Now there's mystical sight. Now there's the uh, sight of the world as mystery. And that's what happened at Transfiguration. And the thing is, those temporal things, if I'm not mistaken, for the monk, and I'm thinking more of the Benedictine tradition, because, of course, monasticism goes even before Benedict's holy rule, but he's the one that has been able to articulate it and had been lived out. So in the West, there's um, many monastic founders in the East that precede him by two and three hundred years, but Benedict establishes it in the West, and that's he's our um, connection to this world. For Westerners. For the Benedictine, it's not so much where those temporal things, as you've said, are a bad thing, but only ask for what you need. There's a whole section in there about going to the cellar and going back and making sure and in prayer, and is this what you really need? It's not so much the want, the passions. Even in the rule, there is order. Otherwise, we fly all over the place, and we can be ruled by, as you said, the passions. Point out to students, uh, chapter four of the rule of Benedict. I get them into monasticism, and they think these guys in the desert are so odd. If we could just get them on a psychiatrist's couch, we might be able to uh, (laughs) uh, straighten them out. Uh, Boy, we sure wouldn't want one of them over for dinner. They'd just make us feel terrible. Well, really, why did the church Christians always flood out to them. Scasius says people came from the cities like bees from a hive in order to visit the monks in the monasteries. Well, the monks look so strange to the students. So I pull up chapter four of Benedict's rule. What are the instruments? Good works. In the first place, to love the Lord God with the whole heart, the whole soul, the whole strength. Yeah, well, that probably just applies to monks. Well, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then one's neighbor is oneself, not to commit murder, adultery, steal, covet, Uh, Okay, I'm up through rule uh, number eight, instrument eight. Yeah, well, okay, he's doing the Ten Commandments, so that applies to everybody, but soon we're going to get to monks, aren't we? Mm -hmm. To deny oneself in order to follow Christ. Hmm, there are things that I must deny myself. John Climacus says, 
poverty is resignation from care. And I think to myself, living in the world, I have a lot of cares that I need to resign from, put away. I can live this asceticism in the world. I have to live it because it's a matter of in the heart. It's not in the location. It's in the interior location. Not to become attached to pleasures. To love fasting. Here comes Lent again. How are we doing? Here's Friday one more time. To relieve the poor, clothe the naked, visit the sick, bury the dead. Yeah, okay, so now he's going through scripture again. Number 22, never give way to anger, not to nurse a grudge, not to entertain deceit in one's heart. He's describing the ascetical discipline. Is he not describing the discipline under which every baptized Christian should be living? Mm-hmm. So you put it nicely in an earlier question, uh, how could I practice asceticism? There's not a desert nearby. First answer is there is a desert each morning for 15 minutes. You could find a quiet place for 15 minutes. And in the people I've been reading lately, Western spiritual writers post-Reformation, the uh, French school, Saint-Sulpice, Francis de Sales, Fenelon are both um, eagerly talking about how the lay person could do this. And their recommendation is take a quarter hour in the morning. You can do that beforehand. Fenelon has a funny line saying, he's, he's writing to people who are in the court of the king. And he says in one place, uh, really, if you think about it, paraphrasing, in any business meeting you're in, in any court ceremony, there's so much twaddle going on that you've got plenty of time to just retreat and make prayers for a moment. You're not going to miss anything. There's going to be plenty of just jabbering that won't concern you. Okay, so there's, first of all, where could you practice asceticism? The moments that you set aside, and that may have to be deliberate, but I think the second place to practice asceticism is constantly to not give way to anger, not to nurse a grudge, not to forsake charity. To be honest, not let a lie come from your mouth. The daily life is an ascetical opportunity. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. 
Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm so glad we're speaking of the Benedictines because they are known for their liturgy to be the great guardians of the practice. Is it fair to say that? It is. And for that reason, they were significant figures in the liturgical renewal because uh, they lived this rhythm. The purpose doesn't just mean conducting so many liturgies per day, but the liturgies per day they conduct is supposed to create a liturgical person. This is their objective. I came into the Catholic Church as an adult. I joke that I'm a a credo Catholic, not a cradle Catholic. Hmm. And I wrote myself into Catholicism in chapter 5 of my dissertation. Not many dissertations have that kind of existential effect on their authors, but uh, I actually backed myself into the corner and uh, became a, a Catholic. And while I was still Protestant, I did a master's degree at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. I liked the Benedictine life, the Benedictine rule, the surface thin kind of appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. And I always had a feeling that somebody should have said to me then, maybe somebody did, and I didn't hear the whisper, oh, so you like the rule of Benedict. You should try Benedict's church. They have a lot more rules. <laughs> Some of them you may not like as much, but that's the point. When you sign on, you have to live under all the rules. Mm-hmm. You just pick and choose. Oh, I like the rule of Benedict, but not those Ignatians or not those uh, Dominicans or this uh, magisterium from the Vatican. Is it? Mm-hmm. If you like the rules, you have to live under them. So my notion of liturgical theology has been trying to connect Lex Arande and Lex Credendi. The law of prayer is the basis or foundation for the law of belief. And I think lots of people are enthusiastic about Arande. It's that Lex. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Liturgy has a Lex Arande. There's a law to this prayer, a discipline. And having said that too, that law, that discipline, it comes from the heart of the church. It comes from the heart of the lived experience or expression, you can correct me, of the mystical body. Right. Which means that it comes ultimately from Christ. Which means it comes ultimately from his Father. We asked earlier about a way to define liturgy. An academic is cautious about plagiarism, so I just name my source. Here's how the catechism 
defines liturgy. Good source. This is the uh, best way to uh, protect yourself. It starts the second part in paragraphs 1066 and following with a little heading, Why Liturgy? This is just added to the description. Why liturgy? Oh, not a bad question for you to ask yourself, uh, authors of the Catechism. And in uh, 1066, it starts this way. In the symbol of faith, that means in the creed that was just described in part one of the Catechism, the Church confesses the mystery of the Holy Trinity and of the plan of God's good pleasure for all creation. Oh, you've got my attention. What would that be? What's God's good pleasure for all creation? That might be worth us knowing. And how does the Catechism answer it? It refers us to the Trinity. The Father accomplishes the mystery of his will by giving his beloved Son and his Holy Spirit for the salvation of the world and the glory of his name. Oh, I've heard those two parts of liturgy before, the glory of his name and the salvation of the world, glorifying, sanctifying. Such is the mystery of Christ revealed and fulfilled in history according to the wisely ordered plan that St. Paul calls the plan of the mystery. The patristic tradition calls the economy of the word incarnate or the economy of salvation. So far, just paragraph 1066 with my interruptions. 1067. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were just a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. There they are again. If we were on uh, Groucho Marx's show, the duck would drop down with the money as the <laughs> glory of God and redeeming mankind, the twin purposes of liturgy. He, Christ, accomplished this work principally by the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and glorious ascension. Good to know the authors of the Catechism will put up an ascension tree. Whereby dying he destroyed our death, rising he restored our life. For it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. There are many artistic pieces, I meant uh, frescoes, paintings, icons of Christ on the cross, the flow of blood and water coming from his side, and angels catching them in a cup for the Eucharist and a seashell for the baptismal font. Coming from his side are the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. We wash in his water and we drink his blood. That's the source of the church. For this reason, the church celebrates in the liturgy, above all, the paschal mystery by which Christ accomplished the work of our salvation. So, 1068. It is this mystery of Christ that the church proclaims and celebrates in her liturgy. Why? So that the faithful may live from it and bear witness to it in the world. We have two tasks. We Christians, we baptized, we have two tasks. To live from the mystery of Christ and to witness to the mystery of Christ. And I think we accomplish the latter by doing the former. We witness to the mystery of Christ by living from the mystery of Christ. Mystery? Mystery of Christ? Might we be talking about mysticism here? Hmm. 1068 continues, For it is in the liturgy, especially in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, that the work of our redemption is accomplished. And it is through the liturgy, especially, that the faithful are enabled to express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ. It sounds like the faithful are enabled to be mystics. 
So the definition finally arrives in 1069. The word liturgy originally meant a public work, a service in the name of or on behalf of the people. This was uh, Schmemann's phrase, the liturgy is the work of a few on behalf of the many. In ancient Rome, paying your taxes was called a liturgy. This was what you did for the sake of the public polis space. When the rich uh, sponsored a civic improvement project and uh, made new roads, or when they sponsored a series of games in the Colosseum, not killing Christians, I presume, but chariot races, this was called their liturgy. It's their contribution for the good of the city. Someone is doing a work to benefit others. That's the definition of the word liturgy, according to Catechism 1069, which continues, in Christian tradition, it means participation of the people of God in the work of God. The work of a few on behalf of the many, in this case, the work of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on behalf of the human race, which stands cut off from God, alienated in death. The Father's will is to destroy death and raise us to eternal life through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the work of salvation is unfolded from the bosom of the Father. So, through liturgy, Christ our Redeemer and High Priest continues the work of our redemption in, with, and through his liturgy. Through the liturgy, Christ continues his work of redemption. So, whose liturgy should we be doing on Sunday morning? Not mine, not yours. Christ's work of redemption should be continued. Whose liturgy should we be doing in our lives? Christ's. When I meet my neighbor, I must be a Christ to him. She must be a Christ to me. This expands beyond the 50 minutes and the mystery which Christ enacted by his passion, his Pascha, is a mystery that takes us up into it, and that's why we're mystics. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fagerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg.